Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business of Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, we break down the latest Metro Vancouver real estate numbers, plus what Aeroplan members think of Air Canada's plan to buy back the loyalty program it created. There's a wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies now making payments and transactions much easier for businesses. On September 13th, we're going to hold a fintech panel here at BIV, and we're going to look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. If you want to get some tickets and some other information, it's available at BIV.com slash events. New mortgage rules have eroded housing affordability and buyers' purchasing power, according to the BC Real Estate Association. As such, the organization expects a 21% drop in residential sales across the province this year, compared with 2017. Jason Turcott is the Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. He joins us now with a look at where the Metro Vancouver market is today. Jason, good to have you back on the show. Glad to be back. How, how much of this is good and how much of this is bad, Jason? Uh, that's a good question because I think you know the 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 initial reaction is, oh wow, this is this is a bad thing. But you know when you when you I think when you take a sort of a a bigger picture view on it, it's actually maybe not a bad thing. I mean, a balanced market, um, I think is is probably the the best type of market when you know for everybody. I mean, that includes new home producers, you know, the real estate community, construction. Uh, you know, people who are employed by it, and then of course people looking to to buy and sell real estate. I mean, that's it's not a bad. So, does this mean that we're at the end of this year going to be in a balanced market? Are we getting closer to that point? Well, that's certainly what the numbers would would indicate. Um, you know, I think the the you know the challenge that we have here in Vancouver, in, in particular, are are in, in that. Uh, um, not a, not a particularly large amount of people ever leave this marketplace. So, although you have slowing sales, um, you know I, I think I would caution anybody who who predicts that that that's going to result in any kind of meaningful um, reduction in the in the pricing. And then we've certainly seen some of it, and 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 some of it uh, uh, over short periods of time is to be expected. But on a, on a longer term approach, we simply uh, have too many people coming, too few people leaving, and an inability to produce housing uh, any cheaper than we do right now, seemingly. So um, I, I don't see, you know, I, like I said, I caution people against thinking that slowing sales figures mean uh, any kind of real drastic decrease in, in price. We've seen over the last, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so, people uh, get into the housing market because in some part, they're worried that they won't be able to get in if they wait much longer. And uh, and so you get a little bit of that momentum generated there. Are we starting to see the same thing with uh, rising mortgage rates that people feel like they'd better get in now because they know that rates are going to go up by a quarter point and a quarter point and a quarter point and eventually be a little bit outside of what they can withstand? Yeah, possibly. I mean, we certainly saw that you know back at the beginning of the year when people were trying to get in before the stress test. There was a bit of a run there where we were seeing that. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, right now, um, my experience anyways has been that it's, you know, this people are sort of taking a, a wait and see approach. It's summer, we're justifying sort of not listing or not buying because, you know, we want to see what happens. So I really look forward to September as being a pretty pivotal month and sort of dictating what the next 
year is going to look like because I find not doing something, whether it be on the selling side or the buying side, because of the summer months and there's been so much change and so much. So I think looking forward, um, you know, we're going to see a, a big shoot up in listings here, I predict, in, in September. And, and I'm really curious to see whether the sales do rebound. Maybe not to historic highs like we've seen in the past few years, but that uh, they rebound back up above or well above what we've seen in July and August. What do you think the sentiment is among people looking to sell their places in terms of how much they can get for their place in obviously a context where we're seeing fewer sales than we did last year? Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting predicament that people find themselves in because nobody wants to sell and feel like they've you know you know I'm putting air quotes around lost you know, some of their net worth. Um, but I think it's important that, you know, it all be put in perspective and that net worth, you know, although maybe if you had sold eight months ago might've been more, um, I mean, the, the prices were really increasing at, a, at an, an unsustainable level. And, um, you know, it wasn't really, I don't know that anybody would have ever bought, you know, four or five or, or more years ago thinking that they would be looking at that kind of an increase. So, you know, I still think where we're at right now and, you know, if, if, you know, I always tell people when you're buying, take a minimum of a five-year uh, uh, approach. Do not, you know, I don't recommend that anybody buy if their motivation is to own it for less than five years. And I would say the same is true today. I think um, people saw a huge increase, and and they're maybe now being forced to sell at a lower number, but a lower number than a really really high number a, a year ago. So uh, I, I still think most people have done very well, and and uh, shouldn't be too too put off by this. Yeah, if somebody had said, well, you know, you're going to be able to get 15% year-over-year appreciation on your house, and uh, and then it, suddenly it becomes 13%, I mean, you're not exactly, <laughs> it's not exactly time for a tag day for no. you. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. It all needs to be looked at in perspective. Yeah, yeah still doing well. There's a, there's a new Angus Reid poll out that shows two-thirds of Metro Vancouver renters want to see housing prices drop 30%. No real surprise there. But interestingly, so do one in five homeowners. Do you think something by way of a 30% price correction, is that, is that wishful thinking in terms of the data you're seeing now, Jason? Well, yeah, wishful thinking is an interesting way to put it. Uh, I, I know that there is uh, a portion of the population out there who would welcome that, but I, I have to believe that those people are not either not considering or certainly or don't have all of the facts of what that would entail. And um, so is it wishful thinking? I think for those people it, it is. Uh, if, if, if it were to happen, would it be a... Um, a massive blow to the uh, the economy in general. I, mean, I think for sure, um, you know, when when people don't have equity in their homes, they spend less, and when people spend less, jobs get lost, and you know, and and the snowball effect could be, uh, you know, really really um, terrible for the economy. And uh, um, so I don't foresee it happening. But for those that say, "Oh, I wish it would," I, I really think that they're missing some facts and, and don't quite appreciate the impact that it would have on not just housing affordability, but just yeah, people's livelihoods in general. Yeah, you're you're happy to see housing prices drop as long as it's not your own, and uh, it <laughs> tends to be it. Um, the other thing, that, though, that's that's interesting, of course, is that uh, the province has been uh, has been working really for the, solidly now for the year and trying to um, trying to 
put some uh, uh, taxes in place that are going to affect its own, um, you know, not, not just uh, taxes on homeowners, but also the revenue that will come into the province. Uh, does a does a housing slowdown uh, put a big hole in the in the provincial budget? Do you think? And and does the government have to then be very wary about how much more it tinkers with the sector? Well, I think so. I mean, that was the interesting part of it when they made all those budget announcements. Um, they were forecasting, uh, you know, concurrently they were forecasting a 30% drop in in uh, housing sales, uh, but they didn't seem to have a corresponding drop in their in the amount of taxes they were collecting from property yeah. transfer tax, which is a massive contributor to their uh, operating budget. So. I do think that they need to be very careful. I think that they, uh, you know, they better be careful what they wish for. I think uh, this government certainly seems to have no problem spending. Um, um, and, uh, you know, if they're um, biting the hand that feeds them, so to speak, uh, it, it is going to have an impact because it is a very, very big portion of their revenue uh, that could potentially see a pretty, pretty big slowdown. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with that. They, they need to be careful there. We've spoken to you before, of course, about the long timelines associated with bringing new supply to market. I'm curious, how closely do developers and developments follow, say, a slowdown in the housing market or even a slowdown in the economy? Well, yeah, I kind of alluded to this a few minutes ago and that our ability to produce housing here is critical to this conversation around affordability. Um, and certainly, at least to this point, what I've seen on our side of the new housing um, developer is that the cost to produce housing have not budged a bit. In fact, they are still on an upward trajectory. Uh, and when you combine that with a scenario where we are seeing a, a, a quote softening market, um, where there may be a little bit of price relaxation or even just a halting of price escalation, what it means is that that new housing starts will slow dramatically, and that'll be one of two reasons: either either um, uh, the performas simply don't work, meaning, you know, based on what you paid for your land and the, and the, the sky high construction costs, you, you can't justify uh, building a project because it is not is no longer profitable or you're just simply not willing to take the risk uh, that the marketplace is, is going to be there. And, and so much of our housing stock, particularly on the condominium side, is on is built on a presale basis, meaning it's not really speculative building. It, it, it requires the sales to be there in order to get the project off the ground. So if we see, you know, for one of those reasons or, or a combination of that new housing stops getting produced, well, you can imagine what that will do, provided that, you know, we still have a reasonably healthy demand in our marketplace and the supply dries up. Um, and that's why I see I really don't see that uh, we're going to have a major, a major real, you know, um, um, decrease in price in our marketplace because i think as soon as the prices start to decrease and we still have this major lack of ability to supply uh, the prices are going to hold and and maybe even you know start to come back yeah. so you know i think it's a it'll be an interesting uh, year ahead for sure plus i mean i was reading a report i think last november or so uh from a, a local group that talked about just the sheer construction costs that are embedded now in our housing and even they, if you were to strip out the land costs, the developer profit, all the levies and taxes and all of that, you still really can't build in, in a city like this for less than about $400 a square foot. Yeah, that's that's bang on. And I, uh, interestingly enough, just last week was looking at some numbers that we have. And 
we are, we're looking at doing a number of new rental housing projects, and and it struck me as I'm looking at these these you know reports that we were we are now considering a project where our total cost on a per square foot basis is more than that uh, which we sold a, a brand new condo building less than five years ago for downtown, which was a which, which was a healthy profitable project. Our cost per foot to build this rental project exceed the revenue per foot of that condo building that was only done five years ago, which was profitable in its time. So yeah. it, it kind of goes to show you just how skewed the cost side of our equation has gotten and how crazy it has gotten. And uh, yeah, to your point, uh, you know, $400 a square foot is a, is a, is a, is kind of a starter number now. And, and if it's a complex project, it goes up from there. And, and that yeah. is, a, is a real problem that we need to address. Plus, you know, we're, we're, we're really getting, I think, almost a near frenzy quite soon around building um, adjacent to the uh, to the new Broadway subway. Mm. And all of those are going to have to be concrete buildings, aren't they? Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise <laughs> it'll, it'll be like living next to the roller coaster. <laughs> Well, yeah, and the city, I mean, the city of Vancouver has, has taken a different approach with that. So I, I, I don't know how much, uh, I really am I'm a little cautious about how much activity we are going to see around that line because of the, the approach they've taken to try and curb speculation, which I think had some merits, but I think they may be uh, gone a little too far in, in their restrictions on the type of development that can occur. And I think we may see, uh, you know, the last thing we want is for a, a SkyTrain lane to be developed and to not have the, um, the infrastructure around it that it deserves. I mean, the, you know, the, the Broadway corridor is fairly dense already, so it's, it's got that going for it. But I think it, you know, has a, a larger opportunity that is at risk of being lost. Mm. Mm-hmm. We're heading toward municipal elections throughout the region. We will have a new mayor. What are you going to be looking for or watching for when it comes to housing and development policies as they emerge? Simplification. Simplify, simplify, simplify. And it sounds like a simple answer. <laughs> but really, I feel like that is, the, that, is, that is the first way forward. And that is we just need to just make process and approvals more transparent, more simplified, so that not just the development community, the construction community can understand it, but for the sake of the people who work within the walls of City Hall so that they can understand their own processes and help to get things through. Um, I I think uh, the slowdown hurts the economy, it hurts housing affordability, but it also, um, you know, it also, you know, all these these snags in the road, they, they, they don't make it, you know, a pleasant experience for anybody there to, to deal with. And um, it, it adds cost, just layer after layer after layer of cost, be it time or be it complexity of project, et cetera, et cetera. I'm looking for someone who's going to take the approach that we really need to streamline and, and declutter uh, the process to get through uh, municipalities. Jason, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. This fall, Air Canada is expected to close on a deal to buy back the loyalty program it created decades ago. After a rejected first bid, a group led by the airline has a deal to buy Aeroplan for $450 million cash. Air Canada also has a plan to transition Aeroplan into a new program starting in 2020. But the news is not necessarily a hit with consumers. Derek Fung joins us now. He's the CEO of Drop, which is a Canadian loyalty app that focuses on digital loyalty programs. He joins us, joins us now on the line from Toronto. Derek, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
What was your initial reaction to this unsolicited bid and now successful bid by Air Canada to buy Aeroplan? Yeah, I actually wasn't uh, wasn't very surprised. I think when you look at both parties, um, the way the way I view it is they both know that a deal has to get done um, because ultimately, uh, you know, consumers suffer when if, if the deal wasn't to be done. I think both parties approached it. Uh, from a from a very strong negotiations perspective, you have the consortium um, essentially coming in and and you know lowballing the <laughs> lowballing AMIA, and then I think AMIA made the right move in having you know some of their most vocal shareholders um, come in and also uh, really proclaim uh, the, the true value, and they they ended up somewhere in between. And so I think from that perspective, it wasn't really a surprise. But I think the most surprising part of it was how quickly Air Canada realized that they needed this asset in-house and how quickly the banks that own the credit cards, um, the Aeroplan credit cards, realized the importance of this asset, uh, of this asset but also you know, how important um, helping and making sure the consumers um, are, you know, don't, don't completely suffer from the transaction, I think was also important. So uh, the original intent was for year 2020 to be really the, that deadline for this transaction to happen. So things happen a lot quicker than, uh, than we thought it would, but I don't think any of this was really a surprise to, to us or to the industry. I'm of a, a certain age, and I, require, uh, I recall the, the launch of Aeroplan. I recall the launch right. of these loyalty programs and how innovative they were at the time um, and how, in a lot of ways now, they've just become so commonplace. Every airline has to have one. Almost every department store has to have one, every major right. retailer. How valuable uh, is Aeroplan to Air Canada? And, and, and it, I guess as a corollary of that, how much could Air Canada ever afford to lose something like this? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I mean, the original spinoff um, really showed the true value of Aeroplan um, with Amia becoming you know, a multi-billion dollar company with Aeroplan being its main asset. Um, and when you think about the main ways that the consumer uh, earns Aeroplan points. It's really through, you know, over 90% of the, of the points that they earn are really through either spending with Air Canada, so purchasing flights or using any Aeroplan uh, credit card, whether it's with American Express, with uh, TD or CIBC. So I, I think it's not only, you know, the, the um, technology or the, the card, but I think what really Aeroplan, Air Canada is buying is the brand. And when you look around, you know, most Canadians know the Aeroplan brand. And I think for them to need to rebrand and change it, and, and it's already quite confusing with Air Canada's altitude. Yeah. And then you have Aeroplan. And so I think it's really making sure consumers aren't confused and making, um, making sure that the brand is still intact. To me, it was the most important aspect of quickly acquiring the, the asset now before it got too expensive. And, and as well, another one of the com- confusing points about this, Derek, the, uh, the, the uncertainty about what happens to points and how they disappear on you if, if they're not mm-hmm. used at a point. What, what are you hearing so far and seeing so far in this space with, uh, with Air Canada and Aeroplan that is, um, is at least reassuring customers? Yeah, so in the industry, we call it breakage. And it's something that we as a, you know, new mobile first, uh, focused on a new generation of consumers, we believe breakage is a bad thing. When 
consumers aren't using your points, it means that they, you know, the, the program either um, it's not satisfying their needs, it's taking too long to earn for something, and ultimately the consumer is not performing that one core action that you want them to, which is to redeem. Yeah. And when you look at the traditional loyalty industry, uh, you know, breakage is upwards of, you know, 17, 18, sometimes 20% of points just don't get redeemed. And often, um, as these programs went public and became, you know, big successes, um, they're able to write off some of these, uh, you know, points um, as revenue. Um, and this was all happening up until, if you recall, the recent Air Miles <laughs> conundrum where oh, yeah. uh, it became, um, yeah, it became illegal for points to expire. And mm-hmm. so I think the biggest worry wasn't so much um, points expiring. I think it was more so, hey, if if all the consumers were all getting nervous and all went to redeem their airplane right. points, Air, Air, yeah. Air, Air, Amy <laughs> might not have the cash. Yeah. Literally, like it's like no, a, it's it, it's a run on the banks, right? It's essentially a, a billion it's a, dollars yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. worth of points. Yeah, yeah, it's a ton. Two billion, two billion dollars uh, worth of points, and uh, legally, they're only you know they they have a, a fraction of that in cash reserves, so they they technically couldn't have taken that, and I think that was more scary more than anything else um, for the consumer. So um, I think, you know, we're, we now have the big banks backing the two billion of points. And so everything is, you know, all good, all good and dandy um, for the consumer from, from that perspective. But, you know, our view is that there's other, there are other negative consequences um, as a result of this transaction that I'm, you know, that happy to, to chat about, but as it pertains to their points, uh, consumers can now have confidence that they can redeem. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we dive into that? What do you think some of the negative consequences are going to be? Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the, the loyalty landscape, um, the innovation around coalition programs really was flexibility for the consumer. It was an ability for them to earn points through various, you know, various means. So with Aeroplan, it was through buying Air Canada tickets. It was spending on your Aeroplan credit card. Um, it was ESO until recently ESO left the program. Um, it was hurt. It's, you know, all these different ways to earn points and, and the ability to then redeem those points across a variety of partners. Uh, we think that with Air Canada now owning the program, your redemption options are going to be quite limited. Um, they want you to redeem all the points for Air Canada flights. And so um, from now until, you know, 2020, I think based on how their, their transaction fully fleshes out, we think that there will be limitations across how you can redeem your uh, your aeroplan points. Uh, we also think that, you know, given Air Canada and, and the banks now owning um, the program, there's just going to be less flexibility. I think there's definitely going to be a focus on earning points through travel. And from what we see from this younger millennial consumer, um, they actually aren't quite loyal to airlines. They actually no. like to, you know, they, they like trying different things out. Often they'll, they'll book the cheapest airline. Um, and also, the you know, we did research in which, um, you know, a third of Canadians would rather use their Aeroplan points for something, um, a reward that's, you know, quickly attainable, such as coffee or grocery um, or an Uber ride. And based on where we're seeing this going, we think that redemption options are going to be quite limited as well. So I think ultimately, consumer tastes are are changing. This program was created in a world with no internet. And uh, I think they're going to have to really quickly innovate or, you know, look at um, 
other options such as acquiring companies or just being more flexible in the way they think about some of these things. Do you think that this uh, opens up a bit of a flank for um, an airline like WestJet to suddenly boost what its loyalty program has so far been, which has you know, not been a very prominent program? Yeah, I think I think there's it's opened a, a whole a whole bag of worms. You see RBC now trying to partner with WestJet, mm-hmm. um, Air Canada, uh, Amy going to Porter, and now going back to Air Canada. So I think I think Aeroplan has definitely done it right. I think the other programs are are definitely further behind in their programs, and I think a, a lot of the other banks that are watching this that weren't part of this consortium, the of RBC of Scotia. Um, I think they're definitely going to be hungry to figure out, you know, their role in all of this. And I think um, Scotia has, you know, they have seen and um, it's it, there's there's a lot happening in the space. So I, I definitely do think there's a, a massive window of opportunity for new companies like Drop to come in and try to figure out our place in this whole in this whole ecosystem. So it's a very exciting time, I think, um, for the consumer, because, hey, if if Aeroplan's not, you know, keeping you happy, all the other banks and startups like Drop are trying to, you know, fill that void. Well, tell us a little bit about what then you see your company as being able to do in this space now as a result of some of this um, uncertainty that exists. Yeah, I think what we've done really well is we've captured a demographic that all of the major banks and all the, you know, major loyalty programs are having trouble capturing. And it's that millennial demographic. And the main reason is because this demographic, you know, how they engage with brands, how they use technology is very different. And, and many of them don't want to use the same programs as their, you know, as their parents. And so what we've done very differently is we've made our program very flexible. You can link any payment card and earn points and you can redeem across a whole slew of rewards, including Amazon, Starbucks, um, Tim Hortons, you know, scene, uh, Cineplex. You can, uh, you know, instantly hit a, hit a button and you get a barcode and you can just redeem it. Um, instantly in person. Um, I think it gives programs like Drop an opportunity to go to all the other partners that are hungry um, to be part of a more flexible program. And when you look at, you know, programs like Air Mile, they often are working with um, players that might not be the number one players in the space. So, for example, you know, for us, we, we might want to approach uh, WestJet or Porter um, to come together to form a consortium um, because ultimately there's definitely room for more players. And I think in our view, the, the player that, that really builds something that consumers really want will be the one that wins, um, not the player with the most money or the player, or the player that's been around the longest. I, I, you know, we truly do think there's an opportunity here for disruption from um, younger startups like Drop. And for programs that don't have the flexibility that, say, programs like Drop offer, what kind of value proposition do they have to give consumers to try and entice them to stay with a less flexible plan? Yeah, what we're seeing, which is also quite interesting, is the coming together of some of these larger retailers. So you see, um, you know, PC Financial, PC Optimum, and and that's, you know, Lava and uh, Shoppers and uh you know, they're trying to form their own little coalition as well. I think the, the value prop they have is they have so much control over the consumers that go into their stores and their stores have such massive footprint that they can really create a more personalized program specifically within those couple stores. So if they know, hey, you're going into Lavla and you're buying, you know, this toothpaste, um, the next time you're in shoppers, they might say, oh, we know you like this toothpaste. 
So, and you can purchase it here. And we know the last time you bought it was, you know, a month ago. So you might be running low. Um, and so it's, it's an opportunity to create a, you know, one-to-one personalized experience across a couple of more physical stores. But um, ultimately, I think that the key here will be the, the players that can capture both online and offline spend. And also, you know, with Amazon um, accounting for, for half of consumers, yeah. um, online spend here in Canada, you know, we definitely do think there's going to be a lot of appetite for more players to work together um, to fend off some of these larger uh, players coming from the U.S. Uh, you read my mind. I was going to ask if uh, you think one day Amazon will ever have its own loyalty program like that. <laughs> I don't think Amazon needs that, <laughs> quite quite honestly. And I think that's you know a huge opportunity for everyone else who's trying mm-hmm. to trying to fight Amazon. I think a lot of these new incumbents pride their experience as their loyalty. And what what I mean by that is Amazon Prime is essentially their loyalty program. Their your ability to get stuff shipped to you quickly. And their ability to get that done right every single time, I think, ultimately, is what will keep people loyal. They won't need a points program. Um, you know, this, their margins are are pretty healthy, but um, you know, they're all it's a margin game, and as much of that they they can keep, the better for them. So I think ultimately, Prime is is their kind of undercover loyalty program. Yeah, <laughs> Derek, yeah. great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us with your insight. Great to, great to be on, and thanks, uh, thanks for having me. That's Derek Fung, CEO of Drop. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and of course at BIV.com, where you can find more business news. We'll be back tomorrow.